1822, the Missouri Gazette ran an ad for the Rocky Mountain Fur Company. They were looking for 100 beaver trappers, American frontiersmen willing to risk Indian attacks to get fur. Among those to accept the challenge was Hugh Glass, a 40-year-old mountain man. It was while trapping for this company that he walked into an open area in the woods and accidentally disturbed a grizzly bear. She mauled him within an inch of his life, tearing chunks of meat from his back and tossing it to her two cubs to eat. She gashed him so deeply the cuts exposed his ribs. She almost tore his scalp completely off. He fought off the bear and, along with other men, killed it. The fur trappers still needed to make headway because they were in Indian territory. But they decided not to leave Hugh behind, so they packed him for two days. Eventually, they knew he would die, so they asked for volunteers to stay behind and give him a proper burial once he finally breathed his last breath. Two men agreed, probably because of the $80 bonus that the company offered. While they were digging his grave, a pack of re-Indians attacked them. The same group had already killed other trappers earlier in their journey, and the two men bolted. The Indians chased after them. Hugh lay left behind. The two men survived and caught up with their team and, like cowards, said that Hugh died and they gave him an honorable burial. Hugh lay deserted by his friends, but something miraculous happened. He began to slowly gain strength. While laying face down, he would eat bugs as they approached him. He eventually graduated to berries and snakes. He knew his only choice of survival was to get to the next settlement, which was 200 miles away. He limped. He crawled. In order to prevent gain green, he allowed maggots to eat his infected flesh. It looked like he would never make it, and then suddenly he came upon a pack of wolves who had just killed a buffalo calf. He, wanted, he waited for them to leave, and then he ate massive chunks of buffalo meat. A little stronger from all the protein, he set up camp, which allowed him to rest and recuperate a bit. As he continued on his journey, he stumbled upon an abandoned Indian village. They left dogs. He strangled one and ate it. He crawled through a year's worth of hell, but he made it. He survived. And you say, Kyle, that was the 1800s. Man, crazy things happened in the 1800s. Men would go to such extremes to survive in the 1800s. They would never go to such extremes to survive in modern history. Well, in 1993, while on a fishing trip in Colorado, Bill Jaraki in his mid-thirties, became trapped after a boulder rolled onto his leg and crushed it. Without a jacket and with snow in the forecast, in a desperate attempt to survive, he used his flannel shirt as a tourniquet and then used his fishing knife to cut off his own leg at the knee joint. He used hemostats from his fishing kit to clamp the bleeding arteries. Then he crawled for 100 yards to his church and I mean to his truck, and then he, he drove himself to the hospital. Now, that's a dude's dude. His last name was uh, Sharon. <laughs> Bill Jaraki was his name. In 2003, a 27-year-old Aaron Ralston had a similar experience. While hiking in Utah, an 800-pound boulder fell and pinned his right arm. He lay trapped for 127 hours, drinking his own urine for survival. 
He actually had a digital recorder and left a message, a dying message for his mother and father. I've seen it. You could, you could see in his face, sunken in, defeat, fear in his eyes. After various attempts to get free, he grabbed a dull multi-tool and began cutting and sawing. He amputated his right forearm. Exhausted and dehydrated, he then rappelled down a 60-foot cliff and hiked eight miles before finding a Dutch family who guided him to a rescue helicopter. He eventually made it to the hospital and survived, and he has an autobiography entitled Between a Rock and a Hard Place. An appropriate title. Now, what do these three stories teach us? Aside from some basic survival skills. They teach us that human beings will do remarkable things in order to live. We will spend money on the best doctors. We will take up disciplined eating habits. We will pack up and move to particular climates. If necessary, we will eat raw buffalo flesh, place maggots in our wounds, and even cut off body parts. But there's a big question we must all answer. What do we live for? What motivates us to fight for life? In the first story, Hugh Glass, he was motivated by revenge. He went to kill those two men who deserted him. In the second and third story, they were motivated by seeing their loved ones' faces. I want to introduce you to a fourth, fourth man. His name, Paul. He was older than the other three. He's a senior citizen. And he didn't face death just once like those men. 2 Corinthians 11 says he faced death often. And that passage goes on to unpack what that looked like for him. When I was 14... My little stepbrother threw a CO2 cartridge into the fire at our camp out. Actually, a lot of them. They exploded, and some burning metal went down my shirt and became trapped. I screamed. Not like a girl, but like a man. <laughs> and everyone ran over to me, patting my shirt to put out the flaming metal. But they, they put it out on my skin. If you look on my back now, I still have scars from it. Imagine what the back of this gray-haired man looked like. Paul's back had been shredded, but not by a grizzly bear, by whips, and not just once. 39 lashes by the Romans, three separate times. 137 whips. His back likely looked like this. On other occasions, the Jews beat him with rods five different times, disfiguring his head and his legs. They actually did this in the synagogues. They beat him black and blue in the church. Paul was also stoned. <laughs> Not like some of you that grew up in the 70s. But, but he actually faced being pummeled with rocks. Blood coming out of his ears and his nose and his eyes. Swollen areas looking like tumors the size of baseballs. He was shipwrecked three times, lost at sea, robbed, bitten by a poisonous snake. His eyes were sunken with major bags under them. He actually talked about all his sleepless nights in 1 Corinthians. Thrown into prison. Clement, writing in AD 96, says that Paul was in prison seven times. And of course, in AD 96, they had a, a pretty good idea because it would have been passed down from mouth to mouth. He also had a thorn in the flesh. 
some major health issue that nagged him. Some say it was a back injury, others bad eyesight. And that's just his body. You can't even see his heart. Forsaken by friends, his heart was in worse shape than his body. Paul, what motivates you to live? What makes you fight for your life? What can sustain a man to face all this and keep going? Paul answers, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. This verse is also the title of my exposition. I'm going to unpack this verse first. And then I will show you how the remaining verses either flow into it or flow out of it. So if you're type A and you're looking for an outline, this may frustrate you. I'm developing a concept first and then I'll give you your outline. Don't worry, I will not leave without your outline. You'll have your outline. This verse is like a volcano and the other verses spew out of it in all directions like lava. So let's, let's work towards this theological concept. You must understand that you will live for something. Maltby Babcock, who wrote This Is My Father's World, said this. Life is what we are alive to. In other words, what moves you, what excites you, what gets you high-stepping out of the bed every morning, that's what you're living for. And whatever this is for you is what makes life, life to you. You will live for something. And there are a lot of options. We all must personalize this blank. For me to live is blank. Among the ruins of ancient Carthage, there's an inscription carved by a Roman soldier. Sounds like something a soldier would say. It reads, to laugh, to hunt, to bathe, to game, that is life. In other words, for me to live is to hunt, to go to the public swimming pool, and to party. Many people you know, they live for the weekend. They have a job, but they only have a job to pay for what they're going to do on the weekend. Work, schmirk. I just go to work so that I can do the things that really make me happy, that really make my life fun. That could be a variety of things. For me to live is experiences. New foods, new places, new traveling destinations. For me to live is to experience adrenaline. Whether that's adrenaline in battle, in skiing, in shopping till you drop, or in multiple sexual experiences. Now, I'll call this the Epicurean approach. Basically, it says, to summarize, for me to live is to have fun. Look at someone's Instagram, and you can tell really quickly if they approach life from an Epicurean viewpoint. That's not the only viewpoint. There's also the Stoic approach. For me to live is to be strong and tough and be in control. Never look like I'm sweating. Never die yellow. And this is common among tough men in the military, and it's also common among countrymen in the South. Never be vulnerable before anyone. Never cry. <laughs> Last week, one of, our, uh, one of our boys asked Sarah during the sermon, is dad crying? <laughs> she said, yes. He said, 
is he faking it? <laughs> she said, no. And he said, well, I'm just surprised. I didn't, I didn't think Dad cried. I just didn't think he did that. Or we're raising a little stoic. You can quickly become conditioned to a stoic life. For me to live is to be strong and always controlling my environment. That, that was actually Hugh Glass. Remember the first guy? I'll fight for my life to get revenge and show those two men who is really tough and who is really in control. It's the stoic approach. Then there's the moral approach. For me to live is to be a good person, to get a degree, to build a house, to grow a portfolio, to watch my kids play sports, to work, to garden. But this was not Paul. His career was not his life. Paul made tents for a living. Do you think he lived to make tents? What, what passions fill your thoughts in your waking hours and sleepless nights? Are you pursuing academic achievement? Career success? Health and fitness? Financial stability? Community recognition? None of those are, are bad in and of themselves, but none are big enough to be your supreme goal. The goal for which your creator designed you. Then there's the relationship approach. For me to live is to have a good marriage and have meaningful friendships. Paul's friends are not his life. They deserted him and he separated from them. You will live for something. There are lots of options. You should live for something that death can't take away. When Queen Elizabeth I, the icon of European fashion, was dying, she turned to the lady-in-waiting and said, and I quote, Oh my God, it is over. I have come to the end of it. The end, the end. She had a love affair with fashion and found out that death took away fashion. You need to have a love affair with something that never dies. Everyone must fill this in. For me to live is blank, and that will determine how the second blank is filled in. To die is blank. If you say, for me to live is money, then to die is to be eternally broke. If you say, for me to live is fame, then to die is to be forgotten. For me to live is power, then to die is to lose control. For me to live is sex, then to die is no more pleasure. For me to live is a career, then to die is to be eternally unproductive. For me to live is beauty, then to die is to be ugly. For me to live is travel, then to die is to go nowhere. For me to live is TV and gaming, then to die is a loss of entertainment. How much of what you really want out of life has an expiration date attached? The treasures of earth come with expiration dates. Now we know that's true with things like bananas and milk, even Krispy Kreme donuts. After four, five, six months, they expire. But sooner or later, the stuff of earth sours. 
Whatever earth produces eventually spoils, rusts, expires. You probably know of a guy who not only enjoys golfing, but that's all he can talk about. In fact, he can't wait to retire so that he can play golf every day. To die is no more golf. You might know people who saved all their lives so that they could retire in a cottage so that they could spend their remaining years living at the beach. And to die is no more sand. You want to spend your life on something that not only matters now, but will matter a billion years from now. Notice the phrase that Paul uses in this verse, for to me. For to me. A.T. Robertson, the great Greek scholar, points out the personal pronoun me is the emphatic pronoun in the sentence. It's in the emphatic position. To me, to me. This is what life means to me, regardless of what it means to others. This is how I govern my life. This is how I prioritize my life. This is what life is all about to me. Others may chart a different course and choose a different path. They may have different organizing principles that determine their life's decisions. But to me, to live is Christ. You will live for something. There are lots of options. You should live for something that death can't take away. Let it be Christ. Don't you long to be captured by something bigger than yourself? A cause of eternal significance? A cause worth suffering and even dying for? There's only one definition of life that will stand up to anything. For me to live is Christ. Living has no meaning apart from Christ. He is the object, the motive, the inspiration, the goal of what we do. Paul would have lauded the declaration of Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf, the father of German Protestant missions, who said, I have but one enthusiasm. It is he, only he. I have but one enthusiasm. It is Christ only Christ. Christ is worth more than a dream spouse and a dream house, more than a dream cruise and a dream retirement. Christ is worth more than all my unfinished plans and aspirations. Dear friend, let this be our declaration. Christ is more valuable to me than anything in this world. This world has nothing to offer that is more valuable than the precious Son of God. Now, I'm going to go all Greek grammar geek on you for a moment. This sentence in the original language has no verbs. Would you underline the word is? For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. The translators supply the verbs for better reading. And it actually does no harm to the text. It just gives clarity. And it would do no damage to substitute this generic verb with more specific verbs. Other verbs could be supplied to describe this idea of a purpose of life, meaning of life, center of life, foundation of life. And it may read like this. To live means Christ. To live depends on Christ. To live revolves around Christ. These other verbs relay the meaning for us well. But actually, there is... There is a beauty in reading the sentence like it was written, without the verbs. For me to live, Christ. And to die, 
gain. There's, there's a cadence to the verse in, in the Greek. Hansen calls this the, the drum beat repetition of same sounds. Paul's own heartbeats are heard in the rhythm of these words. To zen Christos, to apithen kurdos. To live Christ, to die gain. That's Paul's heartbeat. Now that is the exposition of that verse. Now let's look at what flows into that verse and what flows out of that verse. So you type airs. This is the moment you've been waiting for. This is the outline. Truth number one. When Christ is your life, you always have reason to rejoice. 18b reads, yes, and I will rejoice. I call Philippians Paul's jailhouse journal of joy. Paul is facing conviction, possible death penalty. He's an old, worn-out man. Preaching the gospel has taken the toll on that old body. And you can't see Paul's face, but in, in front of the sunken eyes and the disfigured lip and the many times broken jaw is, is a smile. And I know it's a smile because he's telling us he's full of joy. He didn't have a digital journal like Aaron Ralston, but this is his written journal. Even in dire circumstances, you can have joy. Even during painful times, you can smile. When the cancer is killing your blood cells and you're walking through incredible, indescribable pain, there's still a fountain of joy. Everything can fall apart and you can still sing because Christ is your treasure. That's real joy. That's gospel joy. What, what Paul passes on to us has actually been passed on to him. It's a theme all throughout scripture. The prophet Habakkuk rejoiced despite having no food in the fields and no herd in the stalls. Job rejoiced despite losing everything. Health, business, kids. May we pass this legacy on to our children. What are your trials causing you to do? Let us look to Jesus in our difficulty and find Habakkuk-like, Job-like, Paul-like joy. Truth number two. When Christ is your life, you always have reason to hope. Verse 19. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul writes, for I know. From, from the Greek word oida. Meaning, meaning it means to, to know with a grasp of mental certainty. Not, I hope so, I'm really, I, I really think so, I'm biting my nails about this, but I'm hanging on. He's, no, he's hopeful. He speaks out of a reservoir of hope. And, and most commentators here, they hear Paul actually quoting Job. Remember Job's incredible statement of trust? We actually sing a song about it at times. Though God slay me, though he slay me, I will trust in him. You know what follows that? This will turn out for my deliverance. Exact same phrase in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. What is Paul doing here? Paul is meditating on Scripture. He's actually writing Scripture down. And that's the key to hope. Now what I want to emphasize here is not Paul's confidence in the sovereignty of God, though I could linger there. But how Paul plans on being sustained 
in the trial. And it's two ways. Through the prayers of the Philippians and through the Spirit of Christ. Let's go with the prayers first. Don't think your prayers don't matter. God uses means, and one of the means for sustaining His people are the prayers of His people. This isn't some passing comment. Paul really believed, like the other apostles and saints, that God used the prayers of His people to provide strength to His servants. And I love the fact that Paul was never too big to ask for prayer. He was never so confident that he didn't fully realize he was helpless without the help of God. As I was studying this week, I posed a question to myself. I talk to myself a lot in my study. It's it's weird. You can psychoanalyze me if you want. But I posed myself a question. What prayers did this conjure up in these Philippians? He asked them to pray for him. And I wonder what they prayed. God, infuse Paul with strength while he waits for you to show up. Father, fill his words with power as he speaks to these prison guards. Holy one, ease his pain. Relieve his thorn in the flesh tonight and allow him to sleep well. He's going to be sustained by the prayers of the Philippians. And then notice this next phrase, by the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. The word help should read supply, referring to the Spirit himself whom God supplies. Let me tell you first what Paul is not saying. Paul is not referring to the notion that he could be deprived of the Holy Spirit and may need the prayers of other Christians to restore it. That is not what he's saying. All believers have the Spirit all the time, but sometimes they experience the Spirit's presence and greater power and abundance than at other times. And that's what Paul wants and that's what he anticipates. Now the question immediately comes to mind What's Paul actually thinking about here when he says that he's absolutely convinced he's going to be delivered? Is he hoping to make an escape? Is he expecting an angel at any moment to unfasten the handcuffs and whisk him away? Is he referring to being vindicated in court? How does Paul know he will be delivered from prison, this house arrest? Well, the answer lies in the meaning of the word deliverance. And there are two legitimate interpretations. Uh, Some commentators believe Paul's speaking about vindication from the earthly court. And then other commentators say he's referring to the ultimate vindication in the heavenly court. Either way, the message is clear for you. The Christian need never fear the outcome of events. He is confident that God will see him safely home and that Christ will prove sufficient for every wound. He continues in verse 20. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed. When Paul uses the word hope, he doesn't mean it the way we often mean it. I hope the Atlanta Braves make the World Series. I hope it doesn't rain today. We must set aside our normal English usage of the word hope that carries a note of uncertainty... Because Paul isn't uncertain, but he is confident that no matter what happens in earth's court, he will stand unashamed in heaven's court. Truth number three. When Christ is your life, you will never fear death. 
living for Christ not only takes the sting out of death, living for Christ makes death gloriously attractive. For me to live is Christ and to die is more Christ. Death doesn't take away Christ, it's an avenue for more of Christ. Verse 20 continues, But that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. Let's stop there. Now watch this. Paul isn't just praying that Christ will be honored. That's not what he's praying. Paul knows that Christ will one day see the presence of the entire human race from all time, all peoples. He will see them bend their knee and acknowledge that he is Lord indeed. Paul isn't just saying, oh, pray that Christ will be magnified. He wants the church to pray that Christ will be magnified in him. It's easy to pray, oh, Lord, show your glory. Oh, Lord, let your truth be known. Oh, Lord, let your grace be seen. It's another thing to pray. Oh, Lord, show your glory in the way I live. Oh, God, let your truth be known through my lips. Oh, God, let your grace be seen in my interactions at work this week. You see, that's another thing entirely. The word honored means to make large, to to magnify. I think there's a wonderful prayer you could pull from this. Pray that your body will be the theater in which Christ's glory is displayed. Verse 20 continues, whether by life or by death. Now this alerts us to a startling thought. Paul's deliverance, whatever deliverance he's talking about, it does not depend on whether he lives or dies. Paul is not threatened by death. John Piper preached his candidating sermon at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota on this text. And and he actually said, and I quote, he said, death is a threat to the degree that it frustrates our goals. Death is fearful to the degree that it threatens to rob you of what you value most. But Paul valued Christ most. He He looked at death and he didn't see it as a frustration He saw it as an occasion for the fulfillment of his highest value that Christ be magnified, end quote. Verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This verse shows us the meaning of life and the glory of death. A life worth living and a death worth dying. Knowing knowing that people go to great lengths to avoid death, It's surprising how death can be so inconsequential to Paul. Add up all the losses that death will cost you. Your family, your job, your dream retirement, the friends you leave behind, your favorite bodily pleasures. Add up all these losses and it cannot compare when Jesus is your greatest treasure. When Jesus is your everything, death is no enemy. Now, some of you here are non-Christians. I just want to lovingly but bluntly say, you will die. It will happen. You will cheat many things in life, but no one cheats death. The grim reaper has your number, and when he calls, you will not be able to turn him away. That's why you must repent and put your faith and trust in the one who conquered death. Jesus Christ. 
Not only does he take away fear in death, but he gives meaning in life. Last truth, truth number four. When Christ is your life, some of you really need to hear this. When Christ is your life, you always have reason to live. You always have reason to live. The guards. <laughs> Just imagine those guards chained to Paul on house arrest. And the guards say, hey, Paul, we don't like you or your Messiah. We're going to kill you, Paul. That'd be great to die as gain. Bring it on, guards. On second thought, we're going to allow you to live, Paul. Fantastic. To live means fruitful, joyous labor, guards. Or we're going to let you live, but we're going to make you suffer, Paul. Hey, guys, I consider the sufferings of this present world not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. It would fill me with joy to suffer for the name. Do you see the power of perspective? Kill me, I'll be with Christ. Let me live, I'll live for Christ. Make me suffer, I'll experience joy and be rewarded by this Christ. This is the unstoppable mentality of the Apostle Paul, and it can be yours as well if you treasure Christ above all things. Verse 22 and 23, Paul is torn between two options. He says over here, option number one, verse 22, if I am to live in the flesh, it means fruitful labor for me. Then option two is in verse 23, I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to, to depart, that's a key word, to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. So Paul is like Aaron Ralston. He's, he's between a rock and a hard place. He's literally pressed to choose between two marvelous possibilities. It's the ultimate win-win scenario. It's not a good desire and a bad desire. It's two good desires. It's like, do you want a filet mignon or a ribeye? Mm, both are great. I'll take one of each. I'll take both. So Paul walks through the pros and cons of each. The pros for staying. He says, verse 24, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. What's, what's a pro for staying? The church needed Paul. They needed him. Verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. By the way, Paul's not suicidal. Don't think he was thinking about committing suicide. Paul's not suicidal. He thought God was going to take him home. But now he says, my feeling now is that the Lord's going to leave me here because you need me. Progress, progress, progress. That's the key word here. I want you to see progress in joy, progress in faith. Progress in joy, progress in faith. God brings people into your life to help you progress in joy and progress in faith. Who are they? Who is helping you progress in faith? Who is teaching the word to you? Who is calling you out when you need to be called out? Who is teaching you to view life as it should be viewed? Who is saying to you, sister... I think this thing holds a place in your heart that it should not hold. Who is helping you progress in the faith? Who is helping you progress in joy? Who is telling you your anxiety is robbing you of joy? Who is telling you that you're speaking out of fear on this one particular matter, not out of faith? Who's holding you accountable to daily meditate on the goodness of God? Who is helping you grow in joy? If, 
If you find people that will speak to you like that, don't ever let them go. They love your soul enough to have hard conversations. That's a good person. That's a gospel person. And Christian, you need to be that for other people. You say, Kyle, what if they get mad at me? Count on it. <laughs> what if they leave the church over it, preacher? Surely you don't want that. I don't want them continuing to sin and no one calling it out. Why are you here? You are left here on earth to help others progress in their faith and progress in their joy. So he says, you guys need a lot of progress. And I think God's going to keep me here. So that's progress for, for staying. That's the pros for staying. Notice his pros for leaving. You may remember in verse 23 when I said the key word was uh, to depart and that it is better. Death for the Christian is always better. I don't care if you're nine months, nine years, 99 years old. Death for the Christian is always better. Do you have this heart hunger for heaven? For leaving this world and all of its cheap substitutes and going to Christ? If you don't, could it be that that you do not have it because you have built a pretty comfortable life down here? Paul actually teaches us something about the nature of a Christian death. It is to depart. A Christian death is to depart. This is actually a camping metaphor. Paul is an old tent maker and he resorts to the language of his trade. This was used in, in, in camping literature. In this case, death for the Christian is the end of what, what was at best a transitory thing, a, a camp life in which he traveled without a permanent resting place. Death is like that. A hike. You fold up the tent, you walk away from the world's woods and into your glorious and forever home. Your earthly tent was made with hands. Not the case with the one in the heavens. For me to live is to labor for Christ. To die is to pack up my tent and experience Christ forever. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.